Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. We hope that these resources aid your worship of God and help you experience gospel change for all of life. For more information on our church or to plan a visit, please check us out online at SovereignHope.Church. That's SovereignHope.Church. Have you ever heard the phrase, if you're not cheating, you're not trying? Maybe after the passage that was just read for us today, you wonder if that's the point of Jesus's message, this parable. Maybe if you're here and you're not a Christian and you're seeking to see what Christianity is like, this parable confirms all of your priors. Maybe you've encountered Christian businessmen or women or individuals whose morals are seemingly suspect or show deceitful business practices. And so in light of the text that was just read for us, you're probably thinking, what in the world is Jesus actually saying? And as we've been working through the book of Luke here at Sovereign Hope, here we have a parable where it seems that at least by association, Jesus is commending a deceitful and dishonest man. One commentator said of this parable, he said, there are knots in it which will perhaps not be untied until the Lord comes again. However, before we proceed, there are three things which we should keep in mind that help us kind of untangle some of those unnecessary knots. And the first is, is that the Bible is not merely a book about moralism. Christianity is not merely about moralism. If you think Christianity is primarily about changing your external actions, then you will be frustrated with this parable because the external actions seem conflicted and convoluted. The principle Jesus is primarily illustrating in this text, as we'll see together, is that our actions flow out of our beliefs. Our beliefs are our first principle in all of our lives. And when this passage realigns our beliefs, our actions will be naturally corrected. Christianity is not ultimately about what you do because it's never enough. Christianity is first and foremost about what you believe. And that's what this text is after. Our actions follow our belief. Secondly, the Bible is not primarily about us. The Bible is written to man, but it is not about man primarily. Which means when we come and we read God's word and our primary goal is to reconcile it to ourself, we will often wrestle with what it means about us. But when we come to scripture realizing that it is first and foremost God's own self-disclosure of himself, it's when we understand who God is, who he is in Jesus Christ, the work he's doing through the Holy Spirit, then we can now rightly apply it to our own lives. And thirdly, reading scripture well requires humble and careful study. Now more than ever, we live in an age of instant gratification and tweets and microwaves and all those things, and we need to resist the urge to dumb scripture down to simple platitudes that we can read like road signs and just take away a cursory understanding of it. But instead, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we want to rightly submit ourselves to God's word and understand it faithfully. So that's what we're going to attempt to do today in this parable. So would you please bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus, we are uh, people who need you. We need help in understanding our own hearts. We need help in understanding our world. And that's why you came. You came to illumine what we could not see on our own and to show us a solution better than we ever could have come up with even together. We ask that your word accomplishes all it is set forth to do, to lead us to repentance, to holiness, and to generosity. We pray this in your name. Amen. So I'll, I'll, I won't bury the lead anymore. So what is Jesus doing in this text today? Well, quite simply, 
he's going to use a story of a desperate and excited man in the face of judgment so as to show to his disciples how they might respond to eternity with zealous and faithful living. It's an if-then parable. Jesus is saying, if this man did this even so poorly, then Christians should do this even more rightly. And Jesus' parable today, as was just read, opens with a manager who was called to account. And if you have your Bibles open, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. We've got some on tables in the back. Feel free to grab one on your way out. Uh, You'll notice chapter 16, uh, which is where we'll spend our next three weeks here at church, all of those teachings from Jesus deal with some sort of intersection between what we love and eternity. It talks about judgment and account and eternity and heaven and hell and how we treat others. And so this day of accounting is of significant importance to us if we want to understand what's going on in all of Luke chapter 16. And so our main point today is simply this, in light of that. Because each of us will be called to account, disciples live as sober, singular stewards. Because each of us will be called to account, those who follow Jesus live as three things we'll see in this text. They live in light of the sobriety of judgment, the singularity of hope, and they live as radical stewards. And so to see this, let's begin to untie some of these knots together, and we'll open the parable seeing the sobriety of judgment, the sobriety of judgment. Jesus opens this passage today in verses one and two, and he says, he said also to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And so here we're reading narrative and now we're reading a parable. And so to study this, we want to look at who are the characters and what's going on. And we're introduced to the three primary characters or groups of characters in this text. First, we see there is a rich man who is a landowner. Second, there is a manager who has been tasked with carrying out the master's business. And then third, there's a group of debtors of people who rent land from this master. And we learn some more helpful information in these opening verses uh, when it comes to knowing something about these parties. First, we learn that the rich owner is well-respected. When we think of wealthy landowners, perhaps we import negative connotations, maybe of like, you know, modern urban American slumlords not taking care of their property or caring for their leasers. Or we think of uh, kind of the feudal situation in the Middle Ages where relationships could be strained, but it doesn't really matter because they make sure you're not decapitated or carried off to another land. But in the ancient Middle East, central to this arrangement was a good relationship between the master and the people who leased his land. In fact, the master was held in such high regard here that he was informed of the manager's malpractice. And we're to assume that it was the people who were renting his land who came and told the master. And so we're learning about the character of the master because it's not like uh, the people who are renting loathe this master and they see his manager robbing him and they're like, stick it to the man. He's getting what he deserves. They actually are risen to to do something in his defense, to defend the honor of their master. And second, we learn something about this manager. And broadly speaking, we learn that he's doing something bad. 
What he was doing, we're not really sure. It simply says he was wasting his master's possession. We just came out of Luke 15, if you have your Bible open, and there we read the story of the prodigal son, and it's the same Greek words and the same structure when it says wasting possessions here, as in chapter 15, when Jesus says of the prodigal son that he was squandering his father's possession. So it's the same problem of the prodigal son. And we learn a little bit more about what was going on with the prodigal son that sheds light on our text here. Just like the prodigal son, the manager had no concern for his master, no concern for the master's property. He was only after his own comfort and his own ease in life. And he was willing to use everything he had to that end with no concern for anyone else. And so while we don't know the specifics of what he's doing, we know it's bad. And we know it's bad enough because he gets fired for it. It's a disqualifying offense. But before he was fired, officially, the master told him to do something. He said, go and turn in an account of your management. So like like in those old detective movies where, you know, the detective goes rogue and he has to turn in his badge and his gun. He's got to go back to his locker, get his stuff, and go put it on his supervisor's desk. And that's kind of the final symbol of his firing. And so this guy, um, because he's an accountant and probably like a weak nerd, he didn't carry any of that with him. And thank you, Shelly. And he has to go, he has to go back to his house to get his Excel spreadsheets and his ledgers. And he has to bring those back to kind of turn them over as one, a symbol of finality. And two, they will record either by what they show or what they do not, the extent of his fraud. So he's on his way home and his wheels are turning in his head. And Jesus tells us what happens in verse three on the way home. He said, the manager said to himself, what shall I do? For my master is taking the management away from me. I am not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. And so here we see this sense of desperation that this is. This isn't like a modern day, oh, you just got laid off or fired at your job. For this manager, this firing was an existential crisis. This kind of relationship in uh, this economic setting meant that the well-being of the manager was tied up in his role. In fact, his position in public, his respectability, all of that was due to his role as an extension of the master. His house, or at least his room, was presumably on the master's property. He lived there as, as part of the master's household which also meant the food that he ate, the protection that he had. All of that was tied up with his relationship to the master. And so when he was having his management removed from him, it was to lose his life. This was condemnation, not only at a private, but at a public level. And by the end of this parable, Jesus is taking this sort of condemnation and dismissal, and he presses it into our own lives as if to say, do you not also know that one day you will be called to account? That you will have to turn in your own ledger of what you did or did not do. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, Solomon says that God has placed eternity into man's heart. Whether we admit it or not, we all live under the burden of some sort of accounting in our lives. Even if you don't believe in God or in eternity, there's something that nags at your heart that you know you need to show a clean ledger on if you are to have peace or some sort of reconciliation of how you view the world. 
Maybe that's your retirement account and you need to make sure that income is greater than debt over time. Maybe it's your own morality. You want to just have the confidence that you're a good moral person and in order to make that assessment, you have to keep track of what it is you've done, whether good or bad. Maybe it's being the perfect spouse and maybe you feel like the perfect spouse because you've kept a ledger of where your spouse fails. Maybe it's just getting to a place where you're able to justify yourself to yourself at the end of every day. I listened to one man this week who said that he denies any reality of eternal judgment, but he faces judgment every day. He just needs to reconcile himself with himself. Every day is a day of account in his own heart. And looking at this story, you might say, sure, I can admit to all those things, but I feel pretty good whether I'm justifying myself to my spouse or to the police officer or to the judge or uh, to, to my own heart that I have a pretty clean ledger. I haven't defrauded anybody. I've been pretty moral. I've been faithful to my spouse. I haven't killed anybody. I've got a clean conscience. But unlike this man, which is just in a parable form, this man uh, had neighbors who saw his external action and he was called to account for those. But we will stand before a God who knows our hearts. Jesus will talk more about that next week. Which means this day of account is not simply what we did, but it's what we thought, what we dreamt, what we loved, what we craved, what we coveted what we wish no person would ever know. And the Bible tells us that our constant desire to measure up to something or someone is a natural awareness of this day of accounting. God has placed eternity into man's hearts. You see, the message of the gospel is good news. But the gospel comes first to us as bad news. It announces to us the reality that we will be called to account. That one day we open up our ledgers and what Genesis 3 shows is that there will be a stain of sin on each of ours. Our ledger might look great, but it has something that is wicked on it. You see, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9.27, it says, it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. Just as the word, this this manager was living peacefully, wasting possessions, but the word of this master, this summoning to his office, shattered his facade of peace. So too does the gospel shatter your false confidence. It sobers us up to the reality of what we've done. You might think you're pretty good. How many of you disobeyed a traffic sign on the way here today? Most of you. We can't even get to church without sinning. (laughs) But our problem is worse than that. We have defrauded the God of the universe. How, you might ask? God is not our master by an employment contract, but by creation. Colossians 1 tells us that all things were created through him and for him. In Acts 17.25, it says that God gives to mankind life and breath and everything. When we just look at this story, if any, you walk to any society in any culture from any worldview at any time and they read this, it's self-evident that this manager had an obligation to the master and the wasting of these resources was a devastating rebellion. 
It was a crime at worst. It was negligence at best. And we commit the same at a cosmic level when we do not render to God the whole of what is his. We've defrauded God by robbing him of worship, and that's primarily what sin is. Before sin is ever visible to our neighbors, it's present in our thoughts, and it's shown in our worship. David Foster Wallace was a writer who was by no stretch of the imagination a Christian, but he realized that we are this master. We have a propensity to worship continually. He said this, he says, here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice you get is what to worship. When you open the ledger at the end of your life, it's not going to show that there are those who worshiped and those who did not. That ledger will simply show what you worshiped. It will show where you spent the resources. And we, from a Christian worldview, have robbed, defrauded, embezzled, and squandered the worship of God by using what he has given us on ourselves or on other things. And the result is just like this story We love a good true crime podcast that gets at embezzlement and fraud like this. But if we believe what the Bible says is true, then we are the con man. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so, in light of this, knowing what you know about your heart, Knowing how many of you would leave if a ledger of your secret thoughts were given to me right now and I were to read to the whole room, this is what you thought about in the last 24 hours. How many would just leave right away? (laughs) But when God reads that, and we know the results will be not great, what would you do to escape that day? What would you do to have confidence that despite what was on that ledger, you might be one who escapes judgment? Wouldn't you do anything to avoid it? And that's what this manager set his mind to do. He thought to himself, there must be another way. I've got to think my way out of this. And in a stunning transformation, the once wasteful manager wasted nothing. He was going to risk everything he just did for the sake of preparing for this day of judgment. There was one hope. There was one chance. And he was now going to use everything in order to get it. And this is our second point today. This is the singularity of hope. The singularity of hope. This man realized that judgment was coming and he had one shot. And this is where, if this was like a movie, it, it, it goes to the scene where the music is playing and there's all these cut scenes of this guy putting together his plan and welding and sparks are flying and doing all this stuff. And he begins to think to himself to, of this hope in verse four. He says, I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. He had one shot when he was kicked out of the master's house. His only hope, because he's too weak to dig and too ashamed to beg, his only hope was that he would be accepted into the house of his master's renters. And towards this singular idea, he now mustered all of the authority he wants 
squandered and all of the possessions he once wasted and he used all of it to assure himself of this one last hope. And in this economic system, um, kind of different than what we have right now, rental agreements came from the bottom up. And so this manager carried with him the authority and the ability to broker a deal. And so as soon as the manager and the renter agreed on terms and the renter signed the contract, that contract was valid. It didn't need the master's signature. And so the manager knows he's been fired, but he hasn't turned in his ledger yet. He's been fired, but it's not been made public. And so he takes full advantage of that. And we notice that because Jesus says he summoned them. This was an official summoning. He's leveraging the facade of his legitimacy And he's calling these people in the name of the master to come to him. And he's going to offer them a discount they can't refuse. For the debtors, the timing of this new contract would have been unexpected because you don't typically get a new contract in the middle of an agricultural year. But they're not suspicious of this agreement. And that's probably because they know the master to, in fact, be generous and kind. And so it didn't make sense in terms of the timing, but it made sense of what they knew about the master. And so the manager starts slashing bills. He says, take 100 measures of oil and write out 50. Take 100 measures of wheat and discount it to 80. I don't know what the value between wheat and oil is, but apparently it's different. And then he says this. Notice that the urgency here in verse 6. He says, take your bill and sit down quickly. Why is he doing that? Because he knows if the news gets out at any minute, his whole plan is ruined. He is quickly and deceitfully putting everything here with a ton of effort. But here's the real scandal. Here's the long con he's really working on. Because while his ultimate solution is that these people would see, like they'd love him because he's the guy who brings the good news of the decreased rent. His ultimate solution is that they, on behalf of that, would invite them into his house. His risk isn't actually with those people, is it? Think about it. If this man went and he said, hey, 50% off, let me into your house. You'd probably say, I like this guy. He seems good, let's keep him around. But what happens if the master comes and says, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't agree to that. And now this man is just shown as not only being dishonest, but of conniving, deceitful, and fraudulent, self-centered, Who's letting that guy into their home? No one is. If the master comes down and says, this guy's a fraud, this man has zero hope in the world. No one's letting him into his home. You see, here's the new risk he takes. He risks everything on the reputation, the character, and the generosity of the master. The good master. The master whom the people loved. And he thought, who will he care more about? Or more importantly, what will he care more about? Will he care more about my singular fraud and throw me in jail? Or will he care more about his reputation and his nature of generosity, kindness, and in this sense, mercy? Would he choose to go and cancel all of these contracts Or would he choose to give this man what he didn't deserve? Mercy. 
And it's for this very reason we read what Jesus says next in verse eight where he says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. It's as if the master looked at him and he said, you dirty dog. You know my character. You know I am gracious and loving slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You bet on that and it paid off. I care more about gracious, abundant generosity than I do about this specific wrong. You see, friends, the gospel comes to us as wasteful sinners and it tells you to take all that you have to take all that we have selfishly kept for ourselves. And it calls you to pour it out, every last drop of it, with desperate, determined, and exclusive zeal on the mercy of God alone. That is your one shot. The thing that condemned him was the character of the master, but in the end, the thing that was going to save him was the character of the master. You get one hope. There is one shot. You see, Jesus isn't affirming the means here. He's called dishonest in this passage. No one read this and was like, okay, well, let's go be dishonest then. But as Christians, the point is that if we are honest, we have one hope. We have one hope to get into the houses of eternity. We have one hope to right the ledger of wrongs in our own life. And what is that one hope? It is the mercy of God revealed in Jesus Christ. You see, because Jesus took your punishment on the cross, the punishment for your embezzlement of worship, the punishment of your defraud of affections, you can assume on God's mercy. We hate this parable because it's scandalous. But what is true in the gospel of Jesus Christ is even more scandalous. This man did nothing to deserve relief. You have done even less to deserve God's mercy. You simply accept it by faith in Jesus Christ. We do not make up for our faults, but instead Jesus dies for them on the cross. This man deceitfully trapped the master in order to take what was never offered. And in Jesus, we faithfully take the mercy by faith, which is freely offered by a God who delights to show himself as merciful. You cannot twist God's arm. There is no shrewd managers in a worldly sense in heaven who by their own merit and might and wisdom twist God's arm into this. But what you can do is you can accept Mercy from the open hand of God by faith in Jesus Christ. That is your one shot. When you stand before God, do you realize you have nothing but mercy by faith through Jesus Christ to save you? And just like this man, if that is your one shot, then shouldn't it change everything in this life? J.C. Ryle says of this parable, he says, in this general point of view and in this only, the steward sets us all an example which we should follow. 
Like him, we should look far forward to things to come. Like him, we should provide against the day when we shall leave our present habitation. Like him, we should all use the means to provide for ourselves everlasting habitations. If we soberly believe what Jesus says about our hearts and about this day of accounting, if we believe when Jesus says that the only way our accounting and our ledgers are cleared is by grace through faith in him, then we should wake up out of our stupor and spend the whole of our lives preparing to be assured of that mercy. That becomes the singular commitment of everything we do, just like it was the singular commitment of this dishonest manager. You see, once this man understood the only thing that would really save him, that was the character of his master, his view of everything changed. Did you notice that? When he understood what would really save him, his view of everything changed. He was no longer passive. He was active. He no longer hoarded wealth for comfort, but he gave up wealth because it no longer meant anything to him. And in fact, in this stunning twist, and even though it was to a self-interested end, this man actually became generous towards others with the possessions he previously only used on himself. And this is Jesus' big if-then statement. Jesus' point here is that if this man did so much out of a dishonest hope, how much more the honest hope of Christians should change the way we view all of our possessions and our work in this life? How much more ought we to creatively be freed to use our worldly possessions when we realize they can never save us? And this is our final point today. Radical stewardship. Radical stewardship. This man took a risk that he didn't know if it would pay off or not. And as believers, we know the mercy of Jesus Christ will pay off. We know it because he rose from the dead. We know we have a salvation that will not fail us. We know because he tells us so. Our eternal dwelling is secure by faith. Therefore, and because of that, all of our worldly possessions will one day fail. They will. And because we know that, we are free to wisely use them, to bless others, and in so doing, enjoy the confidence of the greater reward that heaven possesses. David Foster Wallace continues his thoughts on worship when he says this. He says, the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. The trick is keeping the truth up front in our daily consciousness. Jesus' parable shows just this. It shows that the manager struggled to believe that worship of anything else was dangerous. He struggled to believe that if he worshiped wealth, if he just wasted it, that it would actually fail. He lived as if it would never fail, but one day it did. And we wrestle with that blindness too. And so in these final verses, Jesus is going to give us a tool to remind us of what will fail and to remind us of what won't fail. He's going to give us a tool that reminds us of what really saves us. And this is it. 
change the way you view and use money. If you want to be reminded of eternal hope, if you don't want to be caught off guard, then change the way you view and use your money. You see, most of us live dishonestly, and I am included in this. We live dishonestly because look at where Jesus ends this in terms of mastery and servanthood in verse 13. He says, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This master was obviously trying to serve both God and money, and it didn't work. If money saves us, we will serve it. If money saves us, we will worship it. But if God saves us, we will serve him with our money. If we don't want to be dishonest here, then we will honestly believe what Jesus is saying by treating our money for what it is. Money. That's it. Just as the manager's heart towards money revealed his heart towards the master, so too does yours. And so how do we live? What do we do with this? Well, Jesus is going to give us two things here. How do we live as if we've got nothing to lose? How do we live with this sort of desperate urgency for mercy? Well, Jesus leaves us with two points of application. The first is radical generosity, and the second is responsible stewardship. Radical generosity and responsible stewardship. First, we can live with radical generosity, and we see this in verses 8 and 9. So this is the pivot. He's kind of concluding in the first part of 8, the parable, and then he's going to start applying that to our own lives. So verse 8, he says, The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. So he's using the the parallel here with this story. And so he's not saying go out and defraud people. He's saying make friends for yourself by by wealth that's earned in this world, by just worldly wealth. It's, It's not necessarily sinful wealth. It's just worldly wealth. So make friends by that means so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. And so there he's connected the temporary desire for dwelling with the manager with the eternal dwelling of heaven and hell. And so here, he's leveraging this parable as if to say, make friends by means of whatever wealth you have in this world because of your hope in eternity. The idea of hope made this manager radically generous. It reoriented reoriented the whole of his life. In Christianity, we have more than an idea of hope. We have the reality of it. How much more does the reality of our eternal hope make the Christian generous? This text is showing that there is a connection between three things that we ought to think about. There's a connection between how we spend our money, how we love others, and the state of your eternal hope. And this will be kind of talked about next week and in the week following as well. Specifically in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which Daniel will preach in a couple weeks. But this isn't new. Jesus has already told us this in chapter 12 when he said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you want to know what you worship, open your banking app and see where your money's going, either in spending or in savings. Our money will fail to save in the same way the manager's money failed to save him. But because we have been saved by mercy, not by money, now we're freed to be radically generous with others. Jesus is not saying here that you could buy your way into heaven. Jesus is not saying that charity gets you into heaven, but he is saying that radical generosity that seeks to love others in light of our eternal hope is part of both our evangelism 
and our assurance. Did you notice that? Evangelism and assurance. Look back at verse 9. First, he's assuming in verse 9 that those who we, who we serve with our money, they will be those who welcome us, who receive us into eternal dwellings. In this way, our generosity adorns the preaching of the gospel. Our generosity says to people that we are generous because the master is generous. It allows them to see the gracious, generous love of God through the work of his saints. And in so doing, they might be woken up to the reality of their true need. Generosity is part of our evangelism. But generosity is also part of our assurance. They will be there, but they will be receiving us. And the more we do that, the more we are reminded of this hope. A generous heart gives away earthly possessions knowing it's already got eternal ones. When Christians give towards empty, we're reminded of a hope that's not. The more we tell our money what saves us, the more we're saved from the love of money. Brothers and sisters, you guys know that I wrestle with peculiar anxiety and part of that means that I, I was call myself smog. I'm not a big spender, but I just want to hoard all my wealth and sit on top of it and know that I have it. Or when something fails me, I have money to bail me out. And you know what's been most helpful for me in this area? To just not have money. <laughs> and you guys are gracious. You pay me a salary. And so I have some money, but the thing that helps me the most is to give a large portion of it away. When Sarah and I were first married, by God's grace, we ran into a couple who talked about, they opened, how many of you have opened up your finances with somebody as a means of discipleship? They did that with us. And they showed how each year they desired to increase the number they gave to generosity, to church, to missions, to neighborhoods, to, to nonprofits. And by God's grace, 11 years into it, uh, second only to our mortgage is generosity in our budget. And I don't say that to boast about me, because many of you could, are giving and do give far more. But instead, what I'm wanting to show is that what we have done intentionally, as we have shrewdly made plans towards that end, I have found it immensely freeing to my soul. It's not the amount that's helping me, but it's the intention. I want to be shrewd like this manager. <laughs> I want to assess, now knowing this can't save me, and I want to be freed from it so I can be saved by what really does save me. It has been helpful not only in my anxiety, it has been helpful in my worship. It glorifies God, it serves others, and it reminds me of my true master. It reminds me of what really saves. What would it look like for all of us to take account of what you have in terms of both the two things this, master, this manager used? He used his possessions and he used his position. He summoned by position, and he used the possessions in his negotiations. What might it look like for you to scheme with those two things? To think about how knowing that Jesus and his mercy saves you, those things now become discretionary funds to use for the glory of God. What might it look like if our whole church used those to increase our worship, to serve others, and to glorify God? That might seem ominous and scary to you, but here's good news. And this is why Jesus what he says what he says next in verses 10 through 12. Read with me. He says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? 
And if you have been not, not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Why can we be radically generous? Because we are only responsible stewards. We're just responsible stewards. None of the money is our money. It's all God's money. The manager in this story actually did nothing with his wealth. He did everything with the manager's or the master's wealth. There's one saint who, who's a member here and I often go to her house and visit her in her home. And sometimes um, because she uh, doesn't know the internet exists, she pulls out an envelope and she says, uh, I have some of God's money for you today. All of our money is God's money. Everything you have is given to you by God. You are never generous with what is yours. You're only generous with what is God's. You're never generous with your influence, only God's influence. You're never generous with your hours, only God's hours. You're never generous with your kids, only God's kids. We're never generous with our own possessions, only God's possessions. Charles Spurgeon once shared a story of a gardener who worked for uh, a landowner, and he was caring for this rose um, really intently, really specifically, and one morning he showed up to work and he saw that the rose was gone and he was devastated because he was worried that some of those youths had broken into the garden and cut his rose and he was frustrated and he was bemoaning it. But Spurgeon continues as someone said to him, the master has been down in the garden this morning and he has been admiring this rose bush and he has taken away that fine bud of which you were so proud. Then the gardener was delighted that he was able to grow a flower that had attracted his master's notice. Instead of mourning any longer, he began to rejoice. So should it be with anything on which we have set our hearts. Let each one of us say to our master, my Lord, if it pleases you to take it, it pleases me to lose it. Why should I complain? Because you have taken from me what is really your own. You see, when Jesus gives us mercy, and when Jesus gives us everything as faithful stewards, the beauty of it is it speaks not only to our lots, but also to our little. It speaks to everything we have. What are the little things you have in your life at this moment, and how are you stewarding those for the glory of God and the love of others? Kids in here today, you might feel like you have very little to offer the Lord. But look at what he's saying. He says, he who is faithful in a very little what we do with the littlest of our wealth, the littlest of our strength, the littlest of our love, the littlest of our siblings matters at the biggest levels. How can you use your art skills, your passion for sports, your math, all of that, and pour it out and say, I can give these to others and serve others because they do not save me. Only Jesus saves me. My grade doesn't save me. My piggy bank doesn't save me. My parents don't save me. Jesus saves me. Parents, how much more? Adults, how much more? And there's a profound statement Jesus is making here, right? And we're kind of scared of this because the prosperity gospel exists and that's wrong and that's false. We don't just obey God and he gives us all the pleasures of God in this world. That didn't, it's not what Jesus modeled on the cross. It's not what the Bible shows. It's dangerous, okay? But what he says here is if you've been faithful in a little, you will be entrusted with more. He actually says the more you're faithful, the more you'll be entrusted. 
Are you being trustworthy with what God has given to you? Will he look and say, you are not wasting my possessions. You are doing it well. I'm going to give you more. And here's why this isn't the prosperity gospel. Because sometimes, and sometimes, points even to the cross, sometimes what we have and we manage faithfully is suffering. Sometimes what we have and we manage faithfully is poverty. Sometimes what we have and manage faithfully is sickness. And sometimes it is the delight of God to say, I will give you more to steward for my glory. And we say, it is yours to give and mine to return. This is how we live when we know what saves us. We live radically as stewards in light of an eternal hope. What does faithfulness look like? It looks like the opposite of this manager. It looks like intentionally building a pattern, not of wasting what God has given, but of leveraging all of it in light of what he's given us in Jesus Christ. It uses things to bless others and glorify God because we know how we have been saved. So dear church, let us be shrewd with faithfulness. Let us put on Christ and make no plans to gratify the desires of our flesh, but let us take all of our creativity all of our knowledge, all of our strength and our power and our possession, and let us say, I know what I will do. For I know that I have been accepted into the eternal dwellings by the merit of Jesus Christ and his faithfulness. And so now I will be faithful with all of it. I will spend and be spent for the kingdom because Jesus was spent for me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you work a miracle in our hearts by transforming what we believe about you. That it is your character, a God who desires to show mercy to sinners, that allows us to approach. But it is also only through the merit of Jesus, whose desire is to die as a substitute for his sinful brothers, that we might approach with confidence. And that by seeing what has saved us, we might look at everything else as simply what it is and be faithful to steward it, knowing that there are eternal riches given to us in Jesus. We pray you help us to account of what you've given us in our life and to use that for your glory, for the love of others, and for the worship of our own souls. We pray this in your name. Amen.